I'm Cody Royal, and this is the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is a panel discussion about people innovation and features Gary Ridge, CEO of the WD40 company, and Fergus Connolly, former high performance director with the San Francisco 49ers and Liverpool Football Club. This episode is sponsored by Leaders in Sport, who have a special offer for you later in the show. But for now, enjoy the conversation. Gary Ridge, welcome to the Where Others Won't podcast. G'day, mate. G'day, mate. And uh, Fergus Connolly, you're here as well. G'day, mate. <laughs> G'day. <laughs> so I, I usually start the show by talking about why I've paired these two guests together. And I feel like you two really embody the work that, that I put out about people innovation and, and putting people at the center of what we're doing in the workplace. So Gary, you obviously come from the, the corporate side of that and Fergus from the sporting side of that. And I know you guys have done plenty of, of similar work in terms of talking and, and writing books around how to utilize our people better and, and make them feel comfortable and um, build on top of them as opposed to a, a product or a service. So uh, Gary, we've already used our traditional greeting of, of g'day. Uh, um, so I'll start with you. You have been in the press a lot recently. You've been in a, a bunch of books. Your work has been highlighted as the CEO of the WD40 company. Um, and what's really interesting is you guys sell cans of oil, but you have a 93% employee engagement. And so I guess my first question to you to open up the show is how has your company done that? Well, thank you. You know, I, I learned a long time ago that micromanagement wasn't scalable. And I also learned that I was consciously incompetent. And coming to the US in 1994 and getting the opportunity to leave WD40 company was a great experience. I went back to school. I, I did a master's degree in leadership. I met Ken Blanchard, who's become a dear friend of mine. And, mm -hmm. and what what really became obvious to me is that we were not going to, as an organization, maximize our opportunity if people didn't like going to work every day. You know, it's, it's a shame that, and I think an embarrassment, that 65% of people who go to work every day don't really want to be there. And back in 384 BC, Aristotle said, pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work, and that sort of made sense to me. So I said, how do we create a culture where people go to work every day, they make a contribution to something bigger than themselves, they learn something new, they feel safe and they go home happy. And it, to me, it became just common sense. You know, one of the best books I've ever read is Everything You Need to Know You Learn in Kindergarten. And it's just the simple things that we learned when we were growing up, say please and thank you, pick up, your, up after yourself. If you go out at night, take a friend, etc. So... Really, our goal was to create a place where people really felt like they belonged, and we did that. And now, you know, 20 years, so years later, we've not only proven that you can have a place where people enjoy going to work, but it can create enormous value for the people in the organisation and for those who invest in the organisation. Totally, and 
Fergus, I'll, I'll flick it over to you from, on the sports side and, and you've got a, a new book coming out and uh, I've had a, a little bit of a sneak peek of that. But one of the quotes that you've got on the cover there is from Graham Henry and it, it says, it's all about them, the team, not you. And so he's talking about coaches there. But why did you choose that quote and then how has that kind of idea and, and even what Gary's been talking about there shaped your work in all the different sporting organisations that you've well, worked think, in across I the world? I think that quote sums up Graham. Like, I mean, I sent him a copy of the book and um, you know that was the key message that he wanted to to get across and the book just happens to be you know 59 different lessons I've learned from different sports and around the world and it's similar to similar to Gary the, the conclusion that I've come to through my career is that you can have all the best technology best analytics best sports science um, you know, uh, best innovations, but you win with people. And this is people business at the end of the day. Um, you know, I've spent time studying lots of industries. In fact, my, my uh, master's in advanced manufacturing, and I came into that area and into sport at a time when technology was starting out, where there was a huge explosion in investment in um, technology, computer programming. But I started to realize that there was a limitation to this. And that's what really, really directed me in trying to understand more about how we can make, not make people better, but make better people and look after people. And um, at the cutting edge of elite performance, whether it's sport, military or business, uh, it still comes back to people, and there's so many examples of that. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Gary, why do you think we still overlook this, particularly in the, the corporate world? Why is this still something that we're even kind of debating in 2018, the fact that you should have to or should put your people at the core of, of what you're trying to achieve? Thanks, I think there's a couple of reasons that have become clearer to me over my journey. Um, the first one is is that most leaders, and, and I, I have an alter ego leader, I call him Al, the soul-sucking CEO. And, and Al behaviors suck the soul out of people. And the first one is that he allows his ego to eat his empathy instead of empathy eating his ego. Al got to the job as as CEO by, you know, climbing up the ladder, he kissed a lot of bubble on the way, he's worked hard and now he has the throne and therefore all shall worship him. And so so I think, and you can replace the word CEO with manager or whatever. Sure. The second one, I believe, is fear. Um, you know, in corporate world today, particularly in the, in the realms of public companies, you know, they're... The expectation is that you're going to perform in 90-day intervals. You know, it's all about the next quarter. And that's just total BS. Of course, you know, ongoing performance is important, but it's the, it's the score at the end of the game that matters. You know, I, I know you guys being in, in, the, in the athletics and sports, you, you know that it's, the game's not over till the game's over. So I think this fear of quarterly performance forces people to make short-term decisions so they end up playing 
instead of the whole game, they end up playing a whole of the time. So I think it's, it's ego and, actually, and it's fear. If, if I can add to that, I, I think you see the same thing happening in sport where, um, you know, I've started to use the term sustainable winning as opposed to what you see in sport quite a bit now, which is a, a rush for a sudden temporary improvement, one or two wins as opposed to trying to build a dynasty that will dominate. And you can only do that by establishing a clear vision, goals, um, developing people within a, an organization. Um, so I think there's a rush for sudden success, temporary success, as opposed to trying to establish, like I say, this concept of sustainable success, something that is truly going to dominate um, and it's a, it's not as complex as people would think. It's just uh, to you know, as Gary said, it's a, a state of fear that people don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. I think the the other interesting one there is the idolization of Silicon Valley leaders is kind of skewing this even further. I feel in that I don't see most of those. Uh, leaders in that space, let's just call it tech, as being the great leaders of our time, even though they are put up on that pedestal because they've built massive companies that are having some sort of sustained success. But just as simply as that is that most of them are looking for the the the, the quick exit uh, and go to straight to IPO and uh, you know shed half the staff and and get the big valuation. And so I'm I'm kind of fearful of us just following their lead as well, because I feel like they don't actually set their people up for success. But I want to come back to you, Fergus, because what you started talking about there with sustained success, you've had some, um, or you've done some work with a a guy that won't be well known over here in North America, but is very well known in Ireland, Jim Gavin, who's built the the Dublin football team, and they've won the last four All-Ireland finals. Um, he's on five. And so you talk about in your book that notion of creating sustained success and, and kind of the mindset that it takes to um, basically have the, the comeuppance to, to actually commit to that. So I'd love to kind of hear your exposure to him and, and some of well, the lessons that you've learned from, from the, Jim. The first, the first definition, I think, for every team or any organization is what is success, what is a win. And you know, it, it's not always just simply about winning a trophy or, or barely getting over a line. You know, it's about playing the sport or whatever the activity is in the right way. And you really only compete against yourself, against the best model of yourself. And, um, you know, with Jim, you know, we used to have this conversation all the time. We want to build something um, that we can be proud of. and and win but there's a line which you won't cross you know you'll do um tony smith actually another rugby coach used to have this phrase i'll do everything to win but i won't do anything and i i think that's a very important distinction when you want to build something that is going to deliver sustainable repeatable success and um you know it's how you build an organization that has values that is a vision that people can feel proud of. And the role of sport is to help build young men to live 
great lives and impact others um, through the medium of sport, through teaching them how to overcome limitations, work as a team, um, you know, understand failure, learn from it. Um, and that's the role of sport. Sport should not be an end in and of itself. And, uh, you know, with Jim, it was probably one of the best organizations and groups to be around because we, you know, very much focused on that and it was very much focused on how to build something that would leave, you know, a legacy that we could be proud of both on and off the field. Um, and that's, that's something that's important to me. It's not, and trust me, that's not the same in every organization. Some organizations are just solely focused on actually profit or on entertainment. Um, but uh, I think that's, that's something that I, I think, uh, you know, I'd love to see in more, uh, more sporting uh, organizations across the board. So the, the creation of kind of that subset of values is, is one thing. And I think everyone's on board with that, but then it becomes how do you implement those into your behaviours and, and maintain it over time? And so, Gary, you've obviously been through this. You've been in your job uh, for a long time. How is... How do you weave it in so that there is maintenance? And it's not just maintenance from the top. It's, it's like I said, weaved into the daily behaviors of everyone in the organization. So how do you kind of maintain that on the day-to-day level? Sure, thanks. So, you know, and I think as just touching too on something that was said by Fergus is that I love the work that Simon Senek does. Simon and I have known each other for a few years, but there's you, you start with people and a culture that respects people, and then you move into purpose and values. And you, you talked earlier about we sell oil in a can. Well, our purpose is we exist to create positive, lasting memories in everything we do. We solve problems, we make things work smoothly, and we create opportunities. How we do that is we create positive, lasting memories by cultivating a tribal culture of learning and teaching which produces a highly engaged workforce who live our company's values every day. So the values part of it is something that has to be embedded in the organisation. And a lot of people think that values are something that are restrictive. In fact, values set people free. And before we got you know, live together, Fergus and I were talking about a movie we love called The Godfather or El Padrino. And, and I often talk about the values that are in that movie. Now, you may not agree with those values, but when you watch those, that movie, you will see that those values are embedded in the thinking and the culture of the movie. And there are very clear consequences for those that do not live the values. You know, we have two measures of values in our company. We say you either live our values or you, you visit our values. And we do not want a lot of visitors. So we talk about them, they drive our thinking, they're forefront in conversation we have, they're the, the written reminders of the only acceptable behavior in the organization. There must be zero tolerance and um, and that must get embedded in, in what we do and how we think. Mm-hmm. I love that. And to be clear, you do solve a lot of problems. I can uh, attest to that, as most people will with your product. 
I want to press you on that a little bit more, Gary, because um, how long did that process take for you to kind of arrive at, at where you're at in terms of your culture now? And, and and further to that, where did it come from? Is this something that was kind of built through your experience and manifested with other people? Was it the inclusion of everyone in developing those values? How did it actually come about? Um, it, this is simple, but not easy, and time is not your friend. The thing that's important is consistency. Um, when we started on this journey of, of really building a culture that could go global and would set people free globally, we talked as an organization, what, what our values should be. What do we value? How, how would we think about? And we came up with, with our set of, of values that are hierarchical, um, and we, we embedded them in our employee or our tribe member development program. And it took a little while for them to get embedded and gain traction. They're fully embedded now. And, and just as a matter of interest, if you're interested, we have six values. The hierarchy, as I said, they're hierarchical. The first value is we value doing the right thing. The second value is we value creating positive, lasting memories in all of our relationships. The third one is we value making it better than it is today. The fourth is we value succeeding as a tribe while excelling as an individual. So the tribe comes first. We value owning it and passionately acting on it. And this one will floor you. This is our last value. We value sustaining the WD40 economy. Now, that really means building a robust economy that provides resources and profit for the people who own the company. You would think that that should be the number one value. But if we live all the other values, the outcome will be the last because profit is the applause of people doing good work. So true. And Fergus, on the, the sporting side of things, and you've seen environments in... GAA, which we talked about, the AFL in Australia, um, where I'm from and, and my sport, you've seen at the NFL level, you've seen NCAA level. How difficult is it for teams when there's so much turnover in the sporting world to maintain those, those values and that commitment to, uh, like we've been talking about, setting the people up for success as opposed to chasing wins? Because one of the things that happens often is as soon as the coach gets on the hot seat, the whole thing comes tumbling down and it's just they're chasing the wind to keep their job and it, it, it can appear from the outside that the whole culture is yeah, going to fall on top of itself. One of the biggest challenges that sporting organizations have, but the irony is that it shouldn't be because the organization and the ownership, uh, the front office, should have clear uh, you know, values in place. And you know everything that Gary has said is something that you know, I visited with, with teams and with organizations. And, you know, I, I speak to, to groups about you can all have different beliefs, but values are where you unite people and you unite. And, you know, I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very, very similar. Like, I mean, I used the word tribe in, in, in my first book, Game Changer. I believe it to be the exact same way as, as Gary describes it. Um, that's where you unite people. So if the values are clearly identified and clearly understood, assimilating a new coach and coaches into the organization should not be a difficult thing. And in fact, as part of the interview process or the search process, that should be one of the, the key things. Because if you bring in groups of people 
who do not align with that value system, um, you will it, it will end in, in failure. And in fact, you when you see people who join organizations, because we all have our own distinct individual value system, and if you end up working with a group of people whose value system is not the same as yours or is in contradiction to yours, trust me, it will eventually lead to unhappiness and you may struggle on for a while, but you know, you will fail. That's why the values, the core values are so, so important um, and establishing them. One other thing that I think is important and Gary would have, you know, a good perspective on this as well. They need to be reinforced or um, not necessarily overtly um, reinforced, but they need to be recognized. It's not some loose piece of paper that you get on day one, an orientation, you know, that you read or that's stuck up on, on, you know, on a wall as you walk through the building. It's something that has to be lived uh, and, um, you know, on a, on a daily basis. Uh, and it's, again, that underlines how important it is to building, you know, this, this idea of sustainable success. And, you know, this to what Gary spoke about earlier, where the profit is the last thing. If your values as a sporting organization are clear, if they're clearly understood, and if they have that hierarchy in place, the wins will come. You know, to quote Bill Walsh, the score will take care of itself. If you have all of those values in place in sequence, you know, success will come. And the definition of success you know, again, what do you define it as? It's not solely about profit. Yes, you're there to make money, but it's about building a happy organization that will that the profit will take care of itself because people will do that a little bit more because they want to work for you. So to put you on the spot a little bit, Fergus, who, in terms of bringing in coaches or leaders that are uh, subscribed to those values, who do you think is doing that well because I know in where others won't one of the people that I interviewed was Ralph Kruger from Southampton Football Club and I think they do that very well and they're not particularly turning it on uh, or lighting it up on the pitch this year but I think as a club that is very well defined in terms of their value system and that uh, people are at the core of that and you know their uh, their phrase is turning potential into excellence and I think they've hired leaders that subscribe to that rather than thinking that that leader is going to come in and save the day. Who else is doing it well in your mind? Well, I think mind? at the professional level, I think it's a little bit difficult because as we were speaking earlier, there's a large emphasis on, you know, on entertainment as opposed to, you know, building a sustainable organization. I think probably one of the best examples is back in Australia at Hawthorne with Alex McClarkson, you know, for the last number of years. Jim Gavin in, in, in Dublin, as we spoke about. But I think what Clarko has done in AFL at Hawthorne, you know, over the previous decade has been very, very impressive. Um, you know, you can't, you can't dominate over a period of time um, without looking after people. The best example of all, of course, is your, your neighbours in the Southern Hemisphere, the All Blacks. Um, and I think one of the unique factors that everybody misses about about them is the fact that small is big. They don't have a huge backroom or organization behind them. They keep it lean 
so that the focus is on people and is on looking after people. I think one of the biggest mistakes that I see in sport is a sudden uh, belief that to get better, we must get bigger. And that's not always the case. Um, I forget the, who said the quote, but, you know, employ one person, uh, you know, pay them the price of two and get the work of three. Well, I'd rephrase it, you know, employ one person, look after them like you would two, and you'll get the work of three. Love that. Uh, and you've broken the golden rule. You've got two Australians on the line and you talked about New Zealand. <laughs> so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll gloss over that one. Um, everyone makes that mistake once, mate, but don't make it again. Um, <laughs> uh, Gary, I, I want to, I, uh, I want to talk about, I want to ask you about something that we were just talking about there. So when, when you're bringing leaders into your organization, what does that look like for you? How do you recruit these guys? Like, how do you identify whether they have the desire, the ability to come in and subscribe to your culture? Cause I think and I, I wrote about this in my book was, I think we can trace a lot of our problems in the workplace back to recruitment and poor recruiting processes and, and not asking the right questions and, and not finding out what we need to find out beforehand. So how do you guys do it to ensure that this culture, this magnificent culture is um, maintained? Thanks. Uh, yeah, you know, interesting. If you go onto our careers page and you were to pull up um, the, the page, the first thing that pops up is our company's values, and it says, initially, if, if you don't align with these, don't go any further. We're not interested in knowing you. Um, but you know, we we can test for competence around skills very easily. You know, I can I can test you and and see whether you can do an Excel spreadsheet, and you probably can, and you can't. Um, on the value side, we spend an enormous amount of time in the interviewing process. Um, talking about um, what it is and what's meaningful at the company. And again, I, I, I agree with Fergus. Our value, I hate seeing companies where, where I walk in and here are the values of, on, a, on a plaque in the lobby. You know, these things are going to be lived every day. We, we also test ourselves around that. You know, we, we've been doing employee feedback studies since 1999. And um, one of the the latest one we, we did, which was in March this year, where we got 93% employee engagement, one of the questions is, I feel my opinions and values are a good fit with the, with the WD40 company culture. 98% of our tribe globally positively answered that question. So it's a matter of you know, you know, both making people aware. It, and, and people come to work for us now because they've heard about who we are and what we stand for. And, you know, leadership is like being on, on Broadway 24 hours a day, seven days a week with the, the lights on and never going off. So you, the observed behaviors in the organization are also important. And uh, we ask our people to talk about how they've lived our values and give examples of them every 90 days when we have our tribal reviews. So these are things we talk about. So firstly, people coming in, we make them very aware of it. Um, we, we're rigorous around conversation, around uh, them understanding the importance and, and, um, and, and getting to know them. We measure it so we can see whether it's being affected and we talk about it, socialize it. 
as part of our you know, daily, hourly behaviours right through the company across the world. So um, they are very important. And so the employees, how much input do they have in terms of potentially changing one of those values or, or part of the culture? Uh, I'm thinking in terms of ultimately culture is, uh, you know, the, the collective behaviours of a group of people. And so as our people start to change, whether it's get younger or uh, whatever it might be, um, how much input through that, those feedback surveys do they have into what it looks like in the future? We have, uh, each of the values have a written description of what they mean. And, you know, we can't have conversations around whether those descriptions are actually relevant at this time. Um, we've tweaked the descriptions occasionally, not very often. Um, you know, values aren't something that, um, that you mess with. Um, uh, you know, from a day, let's change the value because this is the, you know, the trend or the fad of the day. Um, but, you know, we, we ask people to, to share how they feel about them. And we have made a few tweaks to the descriptions of them over time. So I think you know, you're right. Culture is no different from when we went to school, right? We've got a petri dish and we put stuff in it and it grew. If you put crappy stuff in it, you get a crappy outcome. If you put good stuff in it and you look after it, you get a good outcome. So um, you know, I think you've got to be very careful about you know, the value of the day. Um, it's the values of the company. These have been in place for 20-some years. I was just going to add to, you, to that. I think something that people might not recognize is that by, by, doing, by going through that process, um, you, you're giving your staff ownership of the values, which is something that I've come across in one or two organizations where you know, they have values, but they're just inherited by the staff and it, it just and it becomes almost um, you know just something that's there. But by going through that process that Gary's speaking of, the the staff have ownership. It's not just they're not passive; they're actively involved in it. And I think that's something that shouldn't be underestimated, and perhaps it's glossed over by others. Absolutely. Well, and going back to, I was talking about Southampton was one of the things that Ralph told me in our interview was he sees the biggest piece that's missing in leadership and visionary work is the involvement of the people that are supposed to be motivated by what you're creating. And it, it's not just a, a top-down kind of thing. And and again, you know, the, the, the further extension of that is what you, you've both touched on. It, it can't just live in the foyer on a plaque. It uh, needs to be ingrained in the, the daily activities. And then also there needs to be communication pathways to, to identify it and identify what's not a behavior that we encourage, um, et cetera, et cetera. So um, Gary, you were talking about fads of the day. So I want to actually talk about millennials talking of something that has blown up recently. I don't actually want to ask a question. I just want to get your raw thoughts on this whole deal around the millennial generation. So I'll just, I'm just going to throw it over to you and then Fergus, you can chime in as well. I think if you look at millennials or the, the, the group that's being identified as millennials, one of the greatest desires they have is to, to learn. And one of the things that have become clear to us is that if you have a learning organization where they're going to work every day, they're being challenged, they're learning something new, but they're in an environment where they can learn uh, and learning is encouraged, I, I believe and I've seen evidence of the fact that they continue to be 
nourish and, and grow. Now, we a long time ago took the word failure out of our organization. We do not make mistakes. We have what we call a learning moment. And a learning moment is a positive or negative outcome of any situation that needs to be openly and freely shared to benefit all. So having the, and the number one responsibility of a leader is to be a learner and a teacher. Just as the number one responsibility of a coach is not to get on the field and play. And I think a lot of problems happen with millennials where the managers want to get on the field and play instead of being the coach. And they're not encouraging them to be learners or giving them the environment where they can actually learn something new nearly every day. And we've got a lot of millennials in the company, and if you care about them and you, 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 you treat them with candor, no lying, no faking, no hiding, you create an opportunity for them to learn and you don't want to play the game for them, you allow them to have the learning moments, I see that they flourish and they have done. So um, I think that's, the, that's, that's our view on it. I love that. And uh, Patty McCord wrote a brilliant... Oh, there's even a couple of chapters in her book about this exact topic and, and had that same contention was show them the balance sheet, like show them, teach them about the business, get them ingrained, get their hands dirty. Um, that's what they want. And, and the ability to learn what they're actually doing, not just doing a task. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love that you said that. What about you, Fergus? Because again, you've, you've seen even from the, the college level, like college level athletes, you know, kids coming through these days oh, right up to the, the professional level. I couldn't agree more with what Gary said. I think at the core uh, is transparency. Um, you must be open and honest. Um, you know, and I would encourage everybody to watch the, um, you know, the, the presentation that Gary, um, that, that you sent me, because you used the, the term uh, unconditional love. And that's exactly what you should show um, you know, the, the people who work for you. One of the biggest challenges to U.S. sport, and well, particularly football, is the headset and the communication that the head coach can have with the players on the field. And it actually takes away so much decision-making from the quarterbacks and from some of the defensive players where coaches, you know, I'm almost repeating word for word what, what Gary said, that you, you want to micromanage and PlayStation, you know, play PlayStation from the sideline rather than empower um, your staff or your players. The key should be to empower them. And to, and to do that, you have to, to demonstrate some vulnerability. I don't have all the answers. This is what I think. I want to hear back. I want your feedback. But I want to see you do better. And, um, you know, the, the most important thing, I think, for, for coaches is to have the humility to understand that there are people in their organization are going to do that job better than them and to empower them, to encourage them, to come to them and to solve problems together. And to close that loop, you must celebrate the wins together, you know, um, and it's, it's not a difficult thing to do. Uh, it just requires humility, honesty, and that transparency. Uh, of communication between both, you know, you as a leader, which, you know, we spoke about this before we came on air. I see the leadership role as a role, as a facilitator role. So if I'm a head of a department or a performance director or a head coach, it's my job to, to facilitate you 
doing the best job that you can possibly do. That's what I see leadership as. I, I absolutely agree that, you know, in, in the book I wrote with Tim Blanchard, we said our job is not to mark people's papers, it's to help them get A's. And our job mm -hmm. as a leader to help people step into the new version of their best personal self every day. That's why we Totally. It's been my experience too, lads, uh, you know, coaching Team Canada uh, at, at the AFL level. Um, and even, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was up in Ottawa, I gave a presentation to one of the top CHL teams in the country at the moment, the 67s there. And, you know, it's all 20 of them sitting in the room just staring at this presentation that I was giving them. They weren't distracted. They were completely engaged. They were learning something new. I was challenging them to get vulnerable with each other with the idea that that's what's going to show up when they're in the championship game and not the X's and O's. And um, you can see it in these these kids' eyes is that they want to learn and they, they want to be empowered, like you said, Fergus, and, and they want those opportunities. And I guess on that topic, there's there's helping people, but then there's also the self-awareness side of things as well. So it, it's kind of twofold. You need to set them up, then they need to have self-awareness, which I think is one part that's significantly missing. Even on that, like Gary, if I said to you, what are you good at? What is your role and, and what are you good at? What would you respond with? I'm consciously incompetent. <laughs> Explain. The three most powerful words I ever learned in my life were I don't know. Mm -hmm. And what I'm okay at, I hope, is helping people to um, identify their, their strengths and put them to good work. But, you know, I love the three words I don't know. And it I took me a long time in my life to get comfortable with those because as leaders or CEOs, you know, we're supposed to know, right? And when I got really comfortable with that, it was like, okay, I don't know, but I can tell you what, I can help us all find the answers. I'm going to love you up along the way. I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to expect you to be responsible. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to celebrate. We're going to be warriors. We're going to, our values are going to, to protect us. We're going to learn. I'm going to teach each other. And we're going to have a lot of fun. You know, life's a gift. Don't send it back unwrapped. Let's make this a, a good deal. And if you can make all that come to life, then if that's what I'm good at, it's, um, it's, it's some of the, I know what I'm not very good at. What about you, Fergus? Um, uh, <laughs> what are you good at? I'm, I'm not quite sure. Actually, I just, I just love helping good people try and do great things. Or That's really, you know, when, when we talk about leadership and the ability to empower others, um, I think it, it took me a while during my career to understand myself first and to be comfortable and, comp and uh, content in myself. And that allowed me then to, you know, see that my true happiness came from empowering others. Because as a coach, you know, you are, you're expected of all the answers. You know, you're supposed to lead a, a group and a team. And um, until I could say, I don't know, or the two words I use most often when people come to me are, it depends. Um, until I became comfortable knowing what, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, um, that's when I, I believe I became a better leader and became better able to help others. It, um, I realized I didn't have to be the one to the fore. 
uh, I realized I got the most happiness from seeing others succeed and others do better. And I'm content at that. And when I reached that point, I think that's when, um, you know, I, I think I started to, to be, to started on this journey of, um, you know, being a better coach, being a better leader. But at the start, it certainly wasn't like that because in sport, you're expected to be, um, you know, as an athlete, particularly, you start off out, your only responsibility is yourself. And you've got to get stronger, you've got to get fitter, and you spend your, your youth working and training hard on your own and as part of a team. And you carry that into the first few years as a coach. And it takes you time to realize you don't have control over what's going on. And when I, it's, it only, it was until I became comfortable in understanding what, you know, my identity and particularly what my purpose was that I started on that journey, I, I, I believe. So I think that's a very important aspect. Like, I mean, it's easy to stay as leaders, you know, empower others and do these other things, but you can't do that until you yourself you know, know what your identity is, know what your purpose is, and find your own level of contentment. Yeah, I agree with that. You've got to, you've got to get comfortable with yourself. I mean, it's leaders have to have a, a sense of self-worth that is slightly above that that the facts would validate. Mm-hmm. That's been the, the biggest thing that I've been working on in my coaching role has been pushing back onto the players, you know, and they'll come to me and ask for essentially orders. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to play? But my response has started to be, I want, well, I want you to do what you do best. So you tell me what you do best. What, what do you think your elite skills are? What do you, where do you feel best, you know, position wise when you play on the field and, and try to, uh, use that teaching moment for them to, to gather some self-awareness and then really think about it and, and spend some time thinking about it. What, what do I enjoy? Where do I feel like I, I play best? Because I think that's, that's something that's really missing in our whole education system and, and a lot of the systems that we've built has been this identification of our own self-awareness. I can tell you the results have been fairly empowering for the players in that they, they now start to realize, geez, I'm actually really good at this position or, um, you know, I, I feel my best when you kind of feel whole when I'm playing on a half foot flank or whatever it may be. But uh, spending some time thinking about that has been extremely beneficial for, for those guys. We were talking about it and I, I'll share something that Marshall Goldsmith said that I think is really, really cool. He says, life is short. Do whatever you can to help people not for status, but because the 95-year-old you will be proud if you did help people and we will be disappointed if you didn't. Love that. Sorry, Fergus, you yeah, were going to jump in the, with something there as the well. the education system, I think the focus perhaps uh, has always been on, you know, delivering an answer or a, a solution to a problem. I'm particularly interested in people who can find and figure out an answer, not in just giving me the answer. Um, that's why I, I love being around interested people, people who like to explore and figure out things. You know, it's easy to give an answer. It's easy to remember something. But those people who like to solve problems and challenges, because that's what life is about. That's what work is about. That's what sport is about. And um, the ability to learn 
the ability to find solutions um, that is underestimated in our educational in our education system as opposed to just rote and memory and those things totally and to close that loop there that's what I think I'm best at is you know through my writing I think I'm able to challenge people's uh, beliefs and the way that they view the world and maybe make them see the world slightly differently. And when I'm at my most engaged, we'll be, you know, we'll be at a party and someone wants to have a conversation about something. And, you know, you get to kind of challenge someone and, and, and really find out, you know, how something works or, or solve a problem, like you said there, Fergus. And um, that's something, again, that that I've had to learn about myself as well and that A, I like doing it and then B, I think people seem to resonate with whether it's a blog or whether it's the book. Um, but uh, yeah, there was never really a system in place to allow me to capture that for myself. It was always, uh, yeah, you were just kind of told, yes, that's correct or no, that's incorrect. And uh, I think we need to fix that that whole system. And Funnily enough, going back to the millennials, I think they're actually the ones that are doing it themselves. They're not waiting for the system to change. Is that uh, they've just gone ahead and done it anyway, which is fantastic. One of the things I find myself doing a lot these days is asking the question, why do I, why do I believe that? Hmm. You know, being curious, because you know, we live in this fast-changing world and, and you know, we believe things and, and that may have changed. So... There was a great show in Australia when I grew up. The guy's name was Professor Julius Sumner Miller. He used to get on TV and 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 he used to do you know crazy experiments like sucking an egg into a bottle. And he'd always finish the experiment with the question, "Why is it so?" And I love that as well. Was sort of saying, "Why do I believe that? And why is it so?" And that's curiosity, really. That you know really pushes learning, and and it's just fun. Yeah, words really matter, don't they? Uh, a friend of mine said to me recently, he's in the education space here in Toronto, and we were talking about how you get to choose how you respond to situations. And one of the things he said is you always get to choose whether you say something like, isn't that fascinating? So you can apply it to literally anything. If you think you're having the shittiest day on earth and your girlfriend's broken up with you, you still get to choose to say, isn't that fascinating and, and have that curiosity as to why that was the case. And uh, there was something that really stuck with me is that we get that opportunity to say that, whether it's good, whether it's bad, uh, whether we've had 20 negative things happen to us in a, in a day, we still get to think, what? Oh, yeah, why is it? What, what, why, is, why has that happened? And isn't it interesting that this door is closed, but this one has opened for I, us? Um, with with one of the coaches that, that I mentor, I, we've worked on when somebody comes to him with an issue or with a problem, his first word always is yes or is in the positive. Now, he may disagree with it, but it's um, yes, we will look at it or that's interesting. In other words, don't ever answer with a no straight away for two reasons. One, you've already made your decision, but secondly, you've, you've in some cases, you've told the person that you've not even listened to what they've brought to you, but you've also not given them the proper opportunity to explain why they want to do something or why this might be a better idea. Um, the other thing that I try and work on quite a bit is 
when I see an organization do something or succeed, um, doing something that I don't disagree with, I, I always take that time to ask myself, now, why could that work? Even though I, it fundamentally goes against everything that, um, you know, that I believe. And sometimes you just don't have all the information. You're only seeing part of the, the puzzle. So it's, it's very important to not jump to conclusions and, you know, not jump to audit, take up, you know, very hard positions, um, you know, when, when you're challenged with uh, those situations. Two other words, Fergus, you know, you say no, and the other one that I have to challenge myself with is but and however. <laughs> no but and however. <laughs> but going back to kind of this whole idea pulled together is we we don't spend much time developing those communication frameworks and, and being really deliberate about them. And I feel like the organizations, the teams that put real time and effort into that benefit from it a million fold, especially at the moment where I think there's a lot of organizations and teams just kind of going through the motions and, and doing what's always been done. And so there's, there's opportunities to get ahead, which hence the name of my book is Where Others Won't. Where are you willing to go? Um, and, and not in a negative sense, not kind of pushing it to, uh, to the extremes, but where are you willing to go where no one else is focused on and communication and having a communication framework and answering with or starting with yes in your response to everything that the benefits of that are, are huge and and you're really going to uh, create an environment that i think can can see some sustained success going back to what we were talking about earlier gentlemen i i want to uh, move on here i want to talk about what's hot in your worlds right now what uh, what are you super interested in doesn't need to be about this topic doesn't need to be about sport or business what's what's rocking your world at the moment Let's start with you, Gary. Um, I think the, the, thing, the, the thing that's rocking my world is the understanding of, of, of the complexity of change and where can that go? And, and you know, we, we live in this world that's, that there's so much change going on and, and I, I don't want to scare people. Um, I want it to be something that we, we really do grab hold of and, and squeeze and, and, and churn around. So um, it's that sort of thinking that's really you know, buzzing in my head right now is we're in a time of, of rapid change that we should embrace. And how do we do that without scaring people? Yeah. Who's, who do you see that's putting out good work about that topic? Like whose um, content are you kind of taking in or, or who, who are you going to for advice on that stuff? Um, a couple of my fans, you know, Simon Sinek's one of my fans. Um, I, 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 I'm a fan of him, I'm sorry. Um, in that, you know, he, he's really challenging a lot of that thinking. Hmm. Um, and uh, he's got a new book coming out later in the year. I think it's called The, the Game of Work or something like that. I'm looking forward to, to, to learning more from that. But I, I love some of the, the thinking that Simon has around, around that. Absolutely. Simon's thinking on just about any topic. I think um, if I was having a dinner party, I think I'd have Simon and Malcolm Gladwell at the dinner table. I think that would be a fascinating conversation. Uh, what about you, Fergus? What's, what's hot in your world at the moment? I'm looking most at at the minute are the importance of quality over quantity. I think that particularly 
here in the States, there's um, a misconception that doing more means doing better. Um, when better is better. And uh, that means that you can have, you know, more time to do the things that, that you enjoy. I think the other thing that I find very common among a lot of high achievers or aspiring leaders is that they have they they don't have a an understanding of their identity, their purpose, their own personal mission. And sometimes they reach goals that they thought they wanted to reach and they find that it's not what they really wanted and they end up being very unhappy um and you know feel I guess lost. And that's something that um you know I've been fortunate to help some people with recently is you know helping them really understand who they are what's going to bring them and their families happiness so that they don't end up you know at 50 odd years of age with you know a trail of misery and destruction behind them or with their families and yet can be successful um you know you can call it work-life balance or whatever but how do you succeed both on and off the field so, so to speak I love that. One of the lessons I, I spent a lot of time with my grandfather over the last couple of years. He's 82. He's from uh, Narandra, yeah. Gary, so close to Sydney, uh, and uh, and you know moved from the UK, set up a business in Australia, worked for his whole life, and now he's kind of looking back. and And one of his things that he always says is, "What was it all for?" And uh, he's kind of searching for that, you know, um, that that happiness piece or, or regretting not having that that a little bit earlier to your point there fergus so it's so true yeah, like for, you, for so many people if i were to be hit by a bus in, in the morning and i had a few hours to to um uh, you know in, in an emergency room i wouldn't be thinking of trophies or wins you know there are other things that are more important to me i have some text messages from players or people that i helped um you know thank you text that actually means something to me, uh, help them with stuff, nothing to do with the field, off the field. Um, those are the things that are important, um, to me. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's not, it's not about wins and losses, uh, you know, when you're on your deathbed. Totally. All right, lads, uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, we'll finish with, uh, some promos. So, uh, plug away cause you've both got, uh, books, uh, at the moment. So let's start with you, Gary. Where can people find you? And then um, tell everyone where they can uh, find your work that's just come out. Um, best place is my website, which is www.thelearningmoment.net. Um, and uh, I have a page there of books that I recommend, and I write blogs on that. And uh, I also have a Twitter at Learning Moment. So I'm happy to be sharing that out. Uh, my website and Fergus fergusconley.com and uh, yes I've got a, a new book that will be out in the next uh, week or so 59 lessons which are stories and insights from from my time working with different sports and uh, military around the world and uh, just trying to share some of the insights that um, you know I think people might find interesting and it might surprise some people or you know the stories that i remember are the ones about humility and honesty <laughs> they're not about 
big wins or trophies. So um, I hope it's, uh, I hope it helps the next generation of coaches and leaders coming through. That's really what I'd, I'd like it to do. And I've had a, a little bit of a look at that. And what I love about it is the diversity. So it, it's great to have the, the the messages from the Steve Kerrs of the world and, and you know, Popovich and, and those guys. But because of your breadth of experience across the world, you've got people like, you know, that we've talked about, Alistair Clarkson and Jim Gavin. So you're getting messages from sports in Australia, sports in in Ireland and the UK and, and North America. And, and there's, there's a real diversity of message. So I uh, highly recommend the book and you've got me covered by, I think, uh, six lessons, maybe. I think I had uh, 53 <laughs> in mine. Um, so, uh, it, I'm sure it'll be better than, than what I produced, but, uh, yeah, definitely go and check that out for everyone that's listening. Uh, Gary Ridge, Fergus Conley, thank you guys so much um, for coming on the show. This has been fascinating. I, uh, I stopped taking notes about half an hour ago cause there was too many and I, I burned through the first page already. So, um, plenty of learnings for everyone out there, but, uh, thank you guys both for your time. Thanks, Thanks, At this stage of the show, most podcasts will ask you to go and leave them a five-star rating, but I'd rather you go and check out Leaders in Sport. I've got an exclusive offer for you to claim one of a hundred free trials of their online membership with unlimited access for a month. The Leaders Performance Institute gives you members-only access to their entire catalogue of content, which includes contributions from many of the guests you've heard on this podcast. As a member, you'll get full access to daily articles, deep dive performance reports, industry trends, and event videos. Plus, I'll be writing a monthly column throughout 2019. There's only 100 free trials, so jump on this now before they run out. Visit leadersinsport.com forward slash Cody to claim your free membership for the month. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.